for me, the main message is I understand crypto is something that you think is like volatile and like crazy and has all these crazy price swings. But if you look actually behind that aspect of it, there's just this whole new world that we're uncovering. And to me, it feels like it's going to be as ubiquitous as the internet. Like when we first were growing up, we were like, what is the internet? But gradually it's just infiltrated our lives. And I believe that is what is going to happen, especially with these crazy incentive mechanisms. It's like an addiction. You can't get away from it. I would just say, keep an open mind. Just try to learn as much as you can with the amount of time that you have. It's going to be an exciting couple of years or maybe decades. Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hi, this is Will Cheng, and as always, I have my co-host here, Andrew Sue. me today. Hey, how's it going, Will? Today, I have my really close and longtime friend, Yoshi Luke. Yoshi is the first in our Will, Andrew, and Lee learn about Web3 series. This is a series where I just start bringing on all my friends that know more about Web3 than me, and we're just going to ask them a bunch of questions. So, welcome, Yoshi. Hey, guys. So Yoshi, do you mind just giving us a little bit about your background and experience and your journey with Web3? Yeah, so I think it's important to define what Web3 is first compared to Web2. Web2 as I know it, and I don't know how you guys define it, is like big monolithic centralized companies that control uh, the inflow and outflow data. So you think of like your Googles or your Facebooks. I mean, it doesn't even have to be like that big, right? But basically whatever you do online, like Facebook, let's say you hit a post, that data goes into Facebook servers and they have ultimate control of it. So if they want to ban you from your platform or if they want to manipulate the post, you'll never really know. That's how I define Web 2. And then Web 3 for me is that whole, the data is being shared and stored with everyone. So no longer does a company have complete control of that data and therefore they can't really edit it and it's basically permissionless. So you store data on the blockchain and then it's there forever and everyone can see that it's on the blockchain. So how I define web two versus web three, web one, I'm, I have no idea how to exactly define that. By that definition, then my first interaction with web three was through Bitcoin. And Will, you sort of introduced me to it in 2013. And then there was a huge run up at that time and price is a very great marketing tool. So like everyone else, I just bought the peak. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, it, well, that's a thousand, but that's how I- <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was yeah. like winter of 2013, I would say. And I mean, I didn't put like a substantial amount. I just bought like the peak and then like saw it crash like 70, 80% over the next couple of years. And these things happen for everyone. They're just like, what is this thing? And then they buy into it. And then you just see these cycles come and go, basically. Tell me a little bit about your work experience. How did you end up transitioning to doing what you're doing now? And what are you doing right now? I'll go into the work experience first. Probably around 2015, 
2014, 2015. Uh, originally, I had been in advertising and uh, media planning and basically marketing. But around 2013, 2014, I wanted to move back up to San Francisco because I wanted to get into startups. And then with that move, I just saw that the whole world was becoming more mobile app-based and, and software-based, like I'm sure everyone else saw. I also found that I liked doing the engineering side of things a lot more. So coding, building things, building analytics platforms, stuff like that, which is something I was never exposed to in college. So uh, I did a web dev bootcamp called App Academy and then learned to become a coder in six months or so. Generally at that time, bought it to Bitcoin, didn't understand what it was, but I started getting more back into it after I graduated the engineering bootcamp. The one great thing that the bootcamp taught me was just a better understanding of how web servers work. So what I understood about Bitcoin was that it's just an asset. It's a monetary value. And because of the whole community, it's, it's basically software, right? And it's software that, that can be changed if the community agrees like, hey, we want to make this change for Bitcoin. The original vision was for it to become this like all ubiquitous payments platform where you could exchange assets really easily. But from what I can see, they somehow lost their way and it just became this thing called like just digital gold. But along came another blockchain called Ethereum. And with the creation of it, they put like a programmable blockchain on top of it. So you can write code on top of it. And at that time, when I was graduating from the engineering bootcamp, I had learned like similar concepts and I found that I didn't understand what blockchain was. When you can add programmable aspects to the blockchain, then it was just like a lightning moment for me. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't go into crypto at that time because there weren't like a lot of jobs or anything like that, but that's when I became like a little bit more interested. And then around 2015, 2016. At what point did you decide to go all in? I had worked at Talkify. Talkify is like a matchmaking company as an engineer and did their marketing for four years or so. And during that time, we saw like a big run up, like 2017, 2018 bubble, and then a, a really big crash. And around 2020, I was just really done with the, the whole startup seat. In, in San Francisco, I would say. Um, so, and I needed to take a break. So at that point, I just decided to take a break and then go into, I, I wouldn't say like I'm like fully into crypto, but I'm just more exploring the aspects of it. And also a little bit of machine learning and a little bit of engineering. So the nexus of the three. What are you exploring and what are you excited about right now? Yeah, the exploration is more so, and mind you, this is more so like on the Ethereum blockchain, but just playing around with a lot of the services that's available. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with DeFi, but it's just borrowing and lending and collateralization and leverage and, and all those things that basically were maybe available only to high net worth individuals. Now it's democratized to anyone. Like if you have an Ethereum address, if you have a Solana address, if you have a Binance address, you can just put some money in and then participate in that whole, I would say, banking, investing community. 
I would say around 2019, some of these centralized services came out where you could deposit like Bitcoin, Ethereum, any sort of collateral and you get a APR or a return. So ever since then, I've just been like dabbling in some of these services that were based on the Ethereum blockchain. I think the big thing I definitely missed was NFTs and I didn't understand it. I still don't, but that'd be like another aspect that I'd be interested in. Let's talk more about DeFi and what kind of yeah. services were you exploring and what are you seeing in DeFi? Yeah, the first thing that was really mind-blowing to me was this thing called compound finance. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's a DeFi protocol. It's not a company. And what you do is you deposit an asset, let's say Bitcoin, let's say Ethereum, and then you can get a return on off of that asset. So if you, let's just say deposit one Bitcoin and the APR is like 5% over a year, you get 0.05 Bitcoin back. The thing that was really mind blowing to me was that you can go, you can deposit that one Bitcoin on the protocol and you still can. You can also borrow against the deposited asset. So at, at the same time that you're lending out your Bitcoin for, let's say 5%, you can borrow against that collateral, let's say like $2,000, one Bitcoin. And at a specific percentage, like it could be like 4%, 5%. And that percent changes daily. And to, let's just say like commoners like us, that's an extremely hard thing to do in the regular financial space. Like you can't just go to your financial advisor and say, here's some stock. I want to borrow against it. Or it, it takes a lot of paperwork. But when I saw that, I was like, this changes like a lot of things with a financial advisor, with an investment bank or whatever, you'd probably have to deposit, I don't know, a million, $10 million worth of stock to borrow against it. But with DeFi, it's just, you could go as low as like, well, I mean, gas fees were, were cheaper that in those days. So you could probably go as low as like a hundred bucks and borrow like 50 to like 30 bucks. So this is what I understand when you're lending out for a certain APR, let's say for example, you're lending out $100 and then you have APR of 5%, right? It's basically yeah. every year you have $5 back. But you're also borrowing yeah. against that. So let's say you're borrowing 4% of whatever it is that you've given up. That means your interest is paying for your loans. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can go obviously over. I think the one thing is that the, it, the, the APR isn't always stable and it's based on supply demand. It's like a protocol. So. One day it could be like 1% lend that you're getting back, but because they want Bitcoin, the APR could shoot up to 10, 20% the next day. And so it compounds by second. And that, that's the other thing that was amazing to me too. By doing this borrowing thing, what you're basically doing is what Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are doing in terms of like bypassing taxes, right? So basically instead yeah. of selling your stock and getting tax on it, what you're doing is you're using your stock as collateral and then you're borrowing money and then that money is not taxed, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one aspect of it for sure. But the other aspect is if you want to leverage up basically. So if you don't want to get rid of your Bitcoin, but you want to also speculate on other assets or you want to 
pay off a car or something like that. Like that's another aspect of it. But yes, yeah, there is a tax purpose for sure. If you're getting on a loan, how do you think about risk when you're thinking about doing that? Yeah, so a lot of these things are over collateralized, right? You, you can't borrow more than one Bitcoin's worth. You can borrow up to 80% of the asset's value. So let's say if it was like a thousand bucks, you can borrow up to 800 bucks. But if it crashes like it does today, like 5%, then they'll sell off your collateral uh, automatically, right? So the worst dips I've seen is like 50%. And then over years, that's like, there's like 80, 90%. So I usually try to go around the 30 to 40% range in terms of collateralization. So you're only borrowing 30% of whatever it is that you put in. Is that right? Got it. Exactly. And you're basically hoping that it doesn't go under 30% or else you'd have to start selling off. Yeah. And the other thing about the over collateralization is I'm not borrowing hundred percent of my assets all the time. Maybe it might be like 5% that I'm only borrowing against. So if it does go under, it's just not that bad, but I don't personally know people, but there are people who just are just go ham and borrow 80% full time all the time. And that to me is like ridiculously risky. I hear a lot about DeFi yield farming, but. I can't really figure out what exactly yield farming is. What is yield farming? <laughs> um, I think it was a bit more popular back last year because a lot of these services were, and you can think of like APRs and also to some extent, like these airdrops as marketing tools. So when a lot of these services launch, they'll launch with like, I don't know, 600% APR. So basically what they're saying is you'll get six times your money if you lend it out for a year. And that obviously never happens because it's like an introductory APR where they entice you to deposit collateral onto their platform. But yield farming is what I know it is. It's like asset inception. So basically you deposit one Bitcoin, let's just say it's like 10,000 bucks. And then you take that borrowed amount that you borrow against from one protocol. And then you put that borrowed amount onto another protocol that has high APRs. And you keep on going and going and going and going to all these different services down the line. And the, t the sum aggregate of your return is some crazy amount, like 600%, 700%. And a lot of people play these games so that they get money back, basically, at the end of the day. But it's use of a lot of different services, taking advantage of high APRs to get uh, assets back. And sometimes that stuff backfires because if the price drops, then there's a daisy chain of collateral liquidation. So, Got it. Uh, in some aspects, it is risky, but in some of these new protocols come out, it's super lucrative. These kind of people are the guys that like to play credit card points and like optimize. Yeah, yeah, points. yeah. And I, I actually, <laughs> I did that too back in the day, but yes, it's right up now. Did you do that? Did you do some yield for me? Um, no, because I just, uh, to me, it was just really risky because 
my risk tolerance for that type of stuff is low because I know that the price can drop and you can get liquidated at any second. So it, it just wasn't worth it to me. That makes sense. Okay. Let's talk about compound. I think we should take a quick step back. Let's try and define protocol because I think a lot of people, that's one of the most confusing concepts about crypto because even a wallet can be confusing because where everything is stored is actually an identification hash and a wallet is your ability to control a hash. And then a wallet also gives you the ability to switch between protocols. Yoshi, what's your take on what a protocol is before we even get into compound as a protocol? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The definition for me, well, I guess the difference for me between a protocol and like a centralized service is who actually has control of whichever asset that you're depositing into that service. So let's say I do want to actually lend out like some Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or whatever. If I use a service like BlockFi, like, yes, they have the wallet address on there and they say that I can withdraw at any time. But when you actually do that mechanism, it goes through a system of checks and balances through their company. And in some cases it'll say, Hey, this is going to take two days to withdraw because of X or some risk parameter that they have. When you're interacting with a protocol, my definition is that you deposit, but you can literally withdraw at any time. Well, you have to pay the gas fees and stuff like that, but the protocol is non-custodial. They don't actually hold the assets. You're holding it and you're, through their algorithms, you're depositing to them. So that's my definition of the difference between protocol and, and centralized service. And obviously like protocols, they don't have like customer service. They don't have a lot of these like employees. They have more so FAQs and like how to use it and stuff like that. But you're basically your bank at that when interacting with a protocol. Yeah. I feel like, would you say, would you agree? Like a protocol is kind of like if you were transferring money potentially between countries or if you were transferring money between two electronic systems. So let's say like the stock market could be a protocol versus your bank is another protocol. Take all the centralized finance out of it, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that kind of in and out. It's hard because everything's centralized, right? Like, well, yeah, centralized. There's the like, there is some like centralization to me. There's like a spectrum of it for sure. And so, like, yes, in some aspects, of, there are a lot of things that are centralized. Yeah. Or I guess asking a question a different way: Why would you switch between protocols? Oh, like, well, if you see a better opportunity somewhere, right? Like in the previous example, let's say like one lending protocol has a 5% APR and the other has a hundred percent APR, then you'd want to switch to that protocol. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll ask a different one. So yeah, let's say like Solana, right? That's a mm -hmm. coin. Is that right? Is it also a protocol or is it just a coin? So Solana is a smart contract platform and so 
I guess like defining a protocol could do a lot of different things. Some are very specific and some are a lot more general purpose. So the, these general purpose ones like Cardano, Solana, Ethereum, to me, they're basically like a database. Like they do a lot of different things. You could store information with them. You can write code that says, hey, if you do this, then do this. That's my definition of Solana and, and Ethereum and Cardano and like all those things. And granted, I don't know too much about Solana. What they do is you can write apps on top of Solana's blockchain. And then the way that they incentivize you to run those apps is they give you Solana token. Yes, it is a protocol. And yes, it definitely is, is a coin too. We're basically talking about layer one versus layer two. Right? So layer one is platform, Ethereum, Solana, right? And then layer two are the dApps. So a co compound would be a dApp on top of Ethereum. Um, okay. So, okay. Layer ones to me are the general purpose blockchains like Solana, Cardano, where you could build dApps on top of it. Now, because some of these platforms were built with decentralization and security in mind, they can only process so many transactions per second. I forget how many blocks Ethereum produces on a minute by minute basis, but because the block times are constrained, basically per block, there's a transaction that you want to put through. And so what these blockchains are doing is they're selling block space. They're saying, Hey, in this block, I want to process these transactions in this block. I want to process the next block. I want to process these transactions. But what some of these other general purpose blockchains have done is they've made the block times faster, or they just made the transactions per seconds faster. So that's their main selling point. Layer ones, because the transactions per second is so low. In turn, in order to get your transaction through, it costs like a phenomenal amount of money. If you want to do something simple now on Ethereum, it's like two, 300 bucks worth of Ethereum. Layer twos to me is they're, they're focused mainly on the transactions per second aspect of it, but they're still referring back to the original blockchain. So there's some of these other protocols that basically batch all these transactions together. And if you interact with that layer two, then everything is lightning quick and it's cheap. And then later on down the line, it batches those transactions, stores it on the Ethereum or Solana or whatever blockchain that, that you want to talk about. Yeah. So God, layer ones and layer twos are, are just like sort of abstractions of like transactions to me. Layer two, you can still build on top of, right? You're still building a dApp on top of layer two. So layer two is, I just introduced this into the conversation, but you were yeah. <laughs> layer two is just getting like, yeah, let's look at, is it a layer between the layer one foundation that batches everything and makes everything faster and cheaper, but you can basically build uh, dApps or decentralized applications on top of layer two or layer one. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about Compound, for example, going back to Compound is a protocol or a decentralized application built on top of the Ethereum blockchain, right? So going back to Andrew's question in terms of why would you switch protocols? I think the protocol definition, we could either talk about protocols as 
dApps, right? Or protocols as layer one to blockchain platforms. Well, okay, well, let's go even back like before that. I think I, I sort of understand your question now, Andrew, which is like protocols as in why would you choose a protocol over a centralized service, correct? No, I mean, even just like, why would someone switch between protocols? Like I'm on my wallet, I can switch between mm -hmm. protocols. I know it gives me access to different things, right? So for example, to buy NFTs, I had to switch to the NFT I wanted, I think was like on the, I don't know if it's the Polygon protocol or the Polygon network as an yeah. example, uh -huh. right? Or so the, but then I guess the question that in terms of compound, is it Compound is a protocol, but it isn't, it's on the same Ethereum network. So yeah, right? yes. So yes. I guess those are two different questions then between why are we, you switch well, between Solana versus Ethereum and why would you switch between Compound and another DeFi thing built on Ethereum? No, Andrew. So what protocols did you switch between is, is, is my question. So Polygon and what, which one? Or like, let's say like Avex, right? So Ave Avalanche. So that's actually a platform to return compounding interest, right? Or moving into, I forget which one I had to switch into uh, to buy like an NFT as an example. Oh, okay. Ave, okay. Ave versus like an NFT platform or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. One reason is I don't think Ave has NFTs on their platform, right? So if you want an NFT or something like that, then, then you'd have to switch to a different protocol. But in your case, well, for compound versus an, an, well, I think what you're talking about for layer ones and layer twos, the reason why they would switch between those, like, so Polygon is a cheaper and faster network to transact these assets, let's just call it versus the Ethereum mainnet. So Polygon is technically a layer two of Ethereum. And keep in mind, like these layer twos can be on top of other chains as well. But layer ones to me right now, and some are not, but Ethereum, super expensive. Solana, relatively cheap right now. And that's why you see popularity on their layer one of apps being built. But if and when they have these constraints, I think they'll have to change to layer two solution. Okay. Let's go back to compound. How does compound work and how would you say, set yourself up with the compound? Like, how does it work? Cause you can introduce it BlockFi and BlockFi is easy, yeah. right? All you need to do is send your stuff yeah. to this little website and then it'll give you interest. Like how does compound work? Yeah. Even before going into compound, if you want to interact with, and I don't know about like the other chains, like Cardano and Solana, but I think the one thing you want to do is you want to set up like a wallet. So like a, a browser-based wallet. So I think Coinbase has a wallet and a browser extension that you can use. And MetaMask is probably one of the more popular ones in order for you to interact with all these different services. Um, Andrew, I'm pretty sure you have a mask wallet, right? If you're interacting. Yeah, Yep. exactly. But you can just think of it as a account where you store several assets like ETH, based assets for now. And as it suggests, it's your wallet to the DeFi protocol asset ecosystem. And one thing that's different about wallets 
compared to like traditional services is it's really easy to set up. Anyone can get a, a wallet. You just have a secret passphrase that you get up, upon registration. And then you have this sort of weird little address that says, hey, this is me. But if you compare it to traditional service or even like BlockFi, what's the signup process? Like you have to give your name, your address, like all this other information, your phone number, your social. There's all these requirements in order for you to register yourself onto the platform. But with a MetaMask wallet or a Coinbase wallet, really easily sign up and go basically. And that's the main difference between interacting with a centralized service and also interacting with a protocol. And no one cares where you're from. Like if you're from, I don't know, some country where it's located by the U.S., like Iran or something like that, you're not immediately on some blacklist. But with a wallet, you're just a hash address on the internet, basically. So before even going into Compound and, and what it does, I think it's important to set up a wallet and then give funds to it and then withdraw it and see how that whole process works. Because... A lot of these protocols, all they ask for you to do now is just connect a wallet. And then once you do, then you can use any service on that platform. So I set up MetaMask. I send some Ethereum into MetaMask. And then what yeah. do I do? How are you interacting with the blockchain? Is it all visual <laughs> yeah. or how does it work? Yeah. So if you want to be ultra safe, and this is how... I started just set up a MetaMask wallet and then send assets between two accounts on that wallet. So with a wallet, you can create multiple accounts and each one is, you could do like tens of thousands of accounts because they're just hashes basically. And there's like trillions and infinite amounts of hashes. So if you want to be like super safe about it, which I suggest you do, you just deposit some ETH onto a MetaMask wallet. So you have a Coinbase account. You can send to an external address. You paste your new MetaMask wallet address into that, that Coinbase account, send some ETH or, or whatever you want to send. And I'll obviously send a small amount at first. But once you do that, then send it between your two wallets. Set up two wallets and then send it from one to the other and see what happens. You'll get the initial interaction. And then maybe later on, you can send it to Andrew or send it to Lee or whoever and then have them send it back. And then from there, it's sort of like taking baby steps. And then from there, connect to one of these services and just connect your wallet and then see what the service offers and like what you can do with, with that service or protocol. So what kind of services are you into right now? Yeah, yeah. So I would say right now, I'm really into layer two protocols. And this is a little bit, I would say further out on the risky side of things because for me, like I've seen that I've interacted with a lot of these DeFi protocols on layer one. And since there's so much in demand, block space and basically gas transaction fees are just ridiculously expensive. Like if you want to, let's say deposit like a hundred bucks, it would take three, 400 bucks just to deposit that one thing. But with these layer two protocols, they're the exact same service, except that it's on a layer two network. If you want to, you know, deposit a hundred bucks, it drops down to like four or five bucks. Some of the ones that I've been interacting with, Arbitrum, Optimism, I've just played around with Polygon. There's 
some new ones that are coming out. It's called like ZK something where it just makes it faster and the transaction costs drop like a rock. The other thing that's really interesting to me is just experimenting with their platform and then receiving an airdrop. Are you guys familiar with airdrops? I think I am, but go ahead and explain it. Yeah. So airdrops are incentive mechanisms for protocols. Usually what they do is they create their own token and they distribute it out to users who've interacted really early with their protocols. It's sort of like a reward slash like governance mechanism. So if you interacted with like compound really early from like a while back, they dropped uh, a compound token and it was like a thousand bucks or or it depended on how much you interacted with the, the protocol, but attached to that is a voting right to see where the protocol should go. So if you want to add a new asset onto compound.finance, and if you really care about the protocol, then you can vote to say, Hey, I want to add this asset onto your system. And it's all community governed. So the two things that I'm interested in layer twos and basically experimenting with some of these platforms, because sometimes they just give out airdrops. The ones that you're looking at, are those layer two for Ethereum or are they layer two for something else? Yeah, they're mainly layer twos for Ethereum. And I think a lot of the general purpose blockchains, um, like the other ones, Solana and Cardano, and I'm not like familiar with everything, but it seems to me like the other ones are still trying to work out their layer one solutions. And because there's not a lot of demand on those platforms, their transactions per second is really high and it's really cheap to interact on the blockchain. The layer two solutions on Ethereum is mainly born out of the fact that there's just a lot of demand on the Ethereum network. So that throughput has to go somewhere. And a lot of these layer two solutions are, are trying to solve that problem. So the ones that you're really into, the layer two Ethereum protocols, um, are you into the actual layer two or are you into the decentralized applications that are built onto the layer twos? Well. It's both because I still want to experiment on those applications, but I want to do it cost effectively. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to spend three, 400 bucks each time I'm interacting with the blockchain. So part of it is out of necessity. And then part of it's just, I still want to interact with some of these platforms that give out like five, 10% APR on like particular assets or something. So there's, there's still these DeFi protocols on top of these layer two platforms then, right? I don't know the exact mechanics of how it works, but there's a way to port over the layer one application to the layer two very seamlessly. And I think it's called interacting with the EVM, Ethereum virtual machine, but basically it's just a simple switch of, Hey, I want to go to the Arbitrum network. So let's say you're on, I don't think compound it, but like on Uniswap, it's a decentralized automated market maker or exchange, but basically all you do is you connect your wallet, you're on the Ethereum mainnet when you first start, and then you can say, Hey, I want to switch to the optimism network. And it's the exact same experience. The only thing is like, they don't have as many assets as the mainnet version. So in that sense, it's, they're not recreating the DAP. You're just switching to another network. We talked a little bit about your interest in AI with crypto. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, machine learning. So the thing with blockchains that's different 
well, with the previous or traditional world, I would say is that there's this whole new area called on-chain analysis or on-chain data, but blockchain, you can take a look at what's actively going on the blockchain. Like it's not behind some server in New York, in New Jersey saying, Hey, this person X traded with this person Y in like some dark pool or whatever, like blockchain. One of the aspects of it is transparency, right? Like you can say, you can see that this Andrew's address interacted with compound.finance or some protocol. So it opens up this whole new field of something called on-chain data analysis. And I think that's super interesting because you have a whole new set of data that wasn't previously available before on the stock market. Obviously there's price, there's earnings and stuff like that. But with on-chain data, it's constantly updated second by second, and you can see a lot of different things. So one platform that I'm currently interacting with is called Glassnode, and they do a lot of on-chain data analysis and they have data for different blockchains. So obviously the big ones like Bitcoin, Ethereum, I think they're, they have Solana and stuff like that, but you could see address growth. You could see, I think one of the interesting ones like entities. So which they tie specific addresses with specific institutions and say, Hey, this is a big institution. And they bought like, I don't know, $20 million worth of Bitcoin or something on this day. I think some of their indicators that they create are interesting. So you can see like the average of what people bought at versus what the price is right now and how much in profit or in loss on average, all the addresses are. And that's like a way to indicate, Hey, this is the market top, this is a market bottom. Um, so it, it opens up a whole new field of data that is super interesting. It's interesting if you can make predictions off of that specific data, whether it's day by day or month by month or, or week by week or whatever, it's constantly updating. And you can say, Hey, because the address growth grew by this percentage, we think the price could be here, or we think that the address growth will come to here at this point. So that's a nexus of like crypto machine learning, like all that, that's super interesting. So basically what it's doing is it's giving you access to the information that a lot of these big financial institutions would pay for, right? To figure that stuff out. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. <clears throat> Fundamentally, it's a transparent, democratizing force. Yeah, it's basically That's allowing non-big financial institutions to either have access to finance, basically doing DeFi stuff, or it's even just transparency in the data. So they have less of an edge when it comes to buying and selling. I mean, who knows? Because they have more resources. I don't necessarily believe that, but at the very least, it evens out the playing field a little bit more to me than what's, yeah, what's usual. And it really opens up endless opportunity for high-frequency trading. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. You basically sure. want to yeah. put together your own firm right now and then build a team yeah. that's watching it. And then you just start to make your own insights and you can just literally start to run models. So that's pretty interesting. And then yeah, it's also so nascent right now, going back to what you were talking about with the yield farming, which is just arbitrage across protocols or blockchains. There is a, uh, I don't know what it's called coming out, but it will monitor uh, all of your investments for you and then auto liquidate. So they've looked and the logic on top of the yield farming is apparently they check your balance like every 30 seconds 
and then they auto sell if your collateral can't back up what you've taken out. And so they're the service that checks every 15 seconds. So it will front run. If it knows it's going to sell off your assets, it'll just auto reduce your positions for you. And then they take a specific percentage cut. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd ever do it. Also, we really need to throw out everything on here is for shits and giggles and not any sort of advice to anyone on here (laughs) whatsoever. Because yeah. Anyways. Um, Yeah. Wait, so going back to your level two explorations, what have you found that's been fun, right? What's just caught your interest? Cause you've been, it sounds like you've seen some, like Glasgow is super interesting. I'd never heard of it before, but what other kind of just explorations have you found that just like, oh wow, like that's novel and I want to play with that some more. What I was going to make about your point about the auto liquidation stuff is I just think we're entering this whole new world where you can basically monetize everything, like anything that you can think of. So for example, I'm not a gamer and I wish I was a little bit more, but crypto gaming is just going to be like absolutely ridiculous. I can't even think of the models, but if you like defeat this boss and get this sword, then you get rewarded. I mean, it could just like extend to even like your own model. If you work out and run five miles, you get a token. There's all these crazy incentive mechanisms that you can think of where every action gives you some sort of reward. And that's a really scary thought to think about, but it also opens up like exciting opportunities. So for me, I'm not particularly familiar with the the crypto gaming side of things, but there's some famous article about how people in the Philippines have been playing Axie Infinity, this game, to earn a living wage. So Yeah, I've heard they set up entire schools at this point where everyone quit. And they all just teach each other because they've figured yeah. it out and it pays so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what you'll see is like, you'll see like teams and clans and all this stuff, like rating each other, like sports teams, basically. My head is full with just like layer two stuff, but I definitely would take a look, especially if you're like a gamer of crypto gaming in general. I don't think you need any more incentive to do so because you're a gamer, but if you add the token aspect of it, then it's gasoline on the fire, basically. Um, I think one of the things though, is that these games have to run this fine line of what's work and what's fun. It's a whole like world of Warcraft analogy, even though I've never really played it, but I I just heard that you have to sit hours and hours on end grinding to get some sort of like special sword or something like that. And there's definitely a point where if you just grind too much and it's not worth the reward, then the game sucks and it's not fun. Right. So. There's that, that fine line that you have to walk across. Makes sense. Is there anything else that we didn't ask you about that you want to talk about? No, I, I think it's really hard to explain in one hour because this whole world and the opportunity behind it, like I'd been dabbling in blockchain and for what, like seven, eight years on and off, right? And it took me, I would say five years to fully comprehend what was going on. So for me, the main message is I understand crypto is something that you think is volatile and like crazy and has all these crazy price swings. But if you look actually behind that aspect of it, there's just this whole new world that we're uncovering. And to me, it feels like it's going to be as ubiquitous as the internet. Like when we 
first we're growing up, we're like, what is the internet? But gradually it's just infiltrated our lives. And I believe that is what is going to happen, especially with these crazy incentive mechanisms. It's like an addiction. You can't get away from it. I would just say, keep an open mind. Just try to learn as much as you can with the amount of time that you have. And it's going to be, a, I think, an exciting couple of years or maybe decades. Amazing. Thank you, Yoshi. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yep. And then for everyone listening, the show, we're working on putting together a page with just our favorite resources and then links to these episodes so that folks will have more of a background and kind of a framework to do some research if you're interested, since our conversations are pretty ad hoc. But we'll share that out later as well with the show notes.